Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Currently, there's at least 43 states that are beginning to reopen their economies, and new modeling is projecting there could be 134,000 coronavirus-related deaths by August. These models are coming from the University of Washington and are favored by the White House, and they took into account rising testing, contact tracing, and rising temperatures. But they said that the premature relaxation of social distancing would likely cause more cases of COVID-19 and more deaths. For more on this story, we spoke to Alice Miranda Olstein. She's a healthcare reporter at Politico. This model out of the University of Washington has been something the White House has referenced for months. And this is actually the fourth time that model has updated. Like you said, every time there are developments across the country, there's new information for making different decisions, you need to update the model to have an accurate prediction. But this is a huge difference. The model just a few weeks ago predicted about 72,000 people dying by August. Now it's nearly 135,000, which is much higher than the White House has been saying in recent days. And like you said, the primary reason they gave for this update is that states are moving rapidly to reopen even though they're not seeing even a few days decline in the number of cases. So the White House laid out this criteria for when states should reopen, but states that have not met that criteria are moving forward anyway, sometimes with active encouragement from the Trump administration. Yeah, and we're talking about the factors that you put into the modeling to get whatever the prediction is going to be. In this model specifically, now they're factoring in data from four different cell phone providers And they're showing that Americans are starting to go out in public more. And there could be a range of things. Like you said, states are starting to relax some of those restrictions. People are getting frustrated and don't want to be home anymore. But it's showing that people are out and about a lot more now. Even state leaders and some in the Trump administration are openly acknowledging that as states reopen, people are going to move around more. They're going to come in contact with more people and the virus is going to spread. Now, the reason the White House and the CDC set out guidelines for states reopening is that they were saying if you bring down transmission to a reasonable level, a level that your public health department can monitor and suppress and trace, then it's safer to take these steps to relax restrictions. But states that have not done those things first are still moving forward. Just by contrast, this is not this uh, model here, but there's another model. This one is from the Wharton School in the University of Pennsylvania. They predicted if all states were to open right now, that we'd have 350,000 deaths before July. It all depends on the factors that you're putting into it. But this specific one that we're talking about out of the University of Washington, this is been a key one for the White House. It's been far more optimistic in its numbers. And one of the things that they also factor in too is the weather. They were factoring in warmer weather that's coming up. And that's why earlier on they were saying, you know, that there would be less deaths as well. I thought it was really interesting. The scientists at the University of Washington did a press call for reporters to explain their model update. And they were saying, look, we really don't know how the warmer weather is going to impact the virus and impact how quickly it spreads in the population. We are making an assumption that, like the flu, it will get 
better when the weather gets warmer, when we move out of the winter and early spring, but we don't know for sure. And they said that it will be several more weeks or even months until we have a really accurate sense of that. Yeah, I mean, that's such an important point to make. These are all assumptions. They're all estimations. And that's why we hear new models and it's tough to really live by them. But the numbers are starting to pan out that way a little bit. This latest one says there would be 134,000 deaths. I mean, we're already at over 70,000 deaths in the United States, and the trajectory just seems to be going there. Some of what's going on is they're saying, you know, some of the harder hit areas like Louisiana, New York City, they're starting to see drops in cases and deaths. But right now there's starting to be an increase in rural areas. So I'm sure the modeling will even change after that. Another factor that makes it difficult is that deaths take the longest to see out of any of these. So you have a state reopen. It'll take a few weeks to even see cases start to surge. After that, you'll see hospitalizations. And long after that, you'll see deaths. So it's hard with the lag time on these different factors and our ability to monitor it. How has the White House been responding as these new numbers come out? I know everybody was making the deal saying the President Trump is saying, oh, we're going to have more deaths and everything now. But how have they been responding as these models come out? They've been a bit more blunt than they have before that state decisions to reopen will increase the rate of transmission and therefore will increase the number of deaths. But they argue that it is worth it because the alternative of remaining in a lockdown scenario has severe problems of its own, including potential economic problems and health problems. And so they say that, look, what we've done so far has brought it down to a more manageable level than if we did nothing, which is just arguably true, but obviously doesn't capture the entire picture. And they say, look, we've done so well, and now we've learned more about the virus so that if there are future surges and outbreaks, we know how to respond to them. People working in public health on the ground warn that we still don't have adequate testing to even know where these outbreaks might rise. Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. Another interesting story we covered this week. As several companies are in the race to create antibody tests to get people back to work and end lockdowns, there's a greater need for the blood of those who have recovered from COVID-19. And what's happening is there's other companies that are stepping in to solicit blood donations from these patients and then selling that blood to labs and test manufacturers at a premium. The more antibodies in the blood, the higher the price. Some samples are selling anywhere from $350 to $40,000. For more on the lucrative trade in human blood samples, we spoke to Jane Bradley, investigative reporter for The New York Times. Basically, these human blood samples, which come from people who have tested positive for coronavirus, are needed by all sorts of people for all sorts of things. And there's a whole network of companies across the world who are ready to supply, to source and supply those blood samples. So the company that first came to my attention is an obscure Californian firm called Cantor BioConnect. And really, I came to know about this company by a British scientist who had been quoted some pretty, what he said were pretty outrageous prices for blood samples that he needed to develop coronavirus tests. And he had been sent a price list by Cantor BioConnect, the Californian company, 
four blood samples, which range from what industry experts said were kind of the more reasonable prices of anything from $350 all the way up to $3,000 for a, a premium sample. So that's a blood sample with a high level of antibodies in it, which is more useful for researchers all the way up to a pretty extraordinary $40,000 for blood samples for a single donor. And those prices kind of went up by the week. On the 31st of March, they started off at $350 per milliliter, which is basically the equivalent of less than a quarter of a teaspoon. But then they went up by more than 40% over the next three weeks, all the way up to $500 for the cheapest sample. Everything is in short supply. You talk about some of the scientists and doctors there in Britain, and they're used to paying maybe $50 or something for a blood sample. And in some cases, they're being quoted almost $950 for blood samples. So they're getting kind of this sticker shock when they're really in desperate need of this blood so that they can make those tests, help make the treatments and all of that. The experts, the scientists I spoke to in Britain were the ones who were particularly shocked by these kind of prices. That's because normally in the UK, it's all kind of handled through the public health authorities or they source it directly from hospitals. And that's either for free or kind of a maximum at cost price, like you said, of around $50. Now, this is before a pandemic, so there are going to be additional costs um, related to just how infectious the disease is. But even in the US, industry experts, regulators, test manufacturers, scientists were used to buying these blood samples, still said those prices of $3,000, $2,000, and especially $40,000 was far higher than they would even expect to pay. And the U.S. has a much more commercial market for this kind of thing. Explain to us a little bit how this works. There's a company such as you mentioned, Cantor BioConnect. They'll solicit some donations from people that have had the virus. And the assumption is they have antibodies in that blood so they can resell that. So they'll solicit those. Then they'll resell all that blood at a premium. And uh, you've gotten some comment, especially from Cantor BioConnect, basically saying, you know, they're not profiteering, but they were soliciting people on social media, offering them even $100 for a donation. I think they even had an online ad that said they were associated with the White House Coronavirus Task Force. That's exactly right. So these smaller companies basically source the samples literally by going on Twitter, on Facebook and advertising primarily on social media. And they say, look, we're trying to help medical researchers develop tests. There's a shortage of these blood samples. Do you want to help science by donating your blood? And one of the women who had agreed to donate her blood, Alicia Jenkins, her friend passed on the advert to her. And she had just recently recovered from coronavirus and, you know, described these really horrific symptoms of being sat in a boiling hot bath and still shivering. The chills were that bad, then fevers of 103 degrees, headaches, uh, nosebleeds. And really that memory was kind of what was at the forefront of her mind, she said, when she agreed to donate her blood. She wanted to help others who were more vulnerable than her who might benefit from her blood sample. And that's really the reasoning of a lot of these donors. They donate their blood not to make money, but because they want to help other people. And Alicia herself was said she was shocked by the 40,000 prices, the $3,000 prices that were being charged 
for blood like she'd agreed to donate by Cantored BioConnect and decided she didn't want to have anything to do with it and wanted to donate to a non-profit. But these companies like Cantor BioConnect can only really get these blood samples out to a wide market with the help of this web of middlemen. And there are all these companies all over the world that Cantor BioConnect, similar companies, will also use that help them get their blood samples out to a global market. Now, One of those companies was a major biotech firm in India, and they were acting as a middleman for Cantor BioConnect. And their prices were even more shocking, given the fact that they weren't really doing very much in terms of costs of sourcing the blood or stuff like that. I think that Indian company even had a $50,000 price tag for a single sample, which was $10,000 more than Cantor BioConnect had. Exactly. And this Indian company, you know, they didn't source the blood. They didn't even ship it out. They basically acted as kind of a middleman marketer. In their words, they were just a facilitator because they had this huge network of labs that they could connect Cantor BioConnect with. So their prices, even the cheapest, doubled from $350 to $950. The premium inventory increased to $5,000 from $3,000. And like you said, the most expensive went up to $50,000, which was just an amount that no one I spoke to said had ever heard of before. As I mentioned earlier, just that these notions of profiteering, I know you spoke to people from Cantor. How do they react when they hear these types of allegations? All the companies involved, Cantor BioConnect and AbbVie Chemical, both deny any kind of profiteering. Cantor itself said that its prices were basically directly related to the high costs of its supply chain. And they listed finding donors, which we know it does through social media, testing the samples and things like safety costs and logistics. And they said that they make up to 40 percent profit on the project overall. Advi, on the other hand, said that basically the company didn't sell any blood samples itself and it merely acted as a facilitator for products that manufacturers might need. And it said it hadn't successfully sold any of Cantor BioConnect's blood samples yet, so hadn't yet made a profit. Jane Bradley, investigative reporter for the New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Another crazy story this week, murder hornets are a thing, but they're most likely not coming for you. The Asian giant hornet looks fearsome and can grow to nearly two inches with a stinger a quarter of an inch long. But while these hornets can pack a venomous punch, they mostly target honeybees and have only been spotted in Washington state last December. For more to what to know about murder hornets, we spoke to Sarah Kylie Watson, editorial assistant at Popular Science. These murder hornets are actually Asian giant hornets that come from places like Japan, and they are pretty big. That's one of the things that makes them so newsworthy is that they can be like two inches long, and they have a stinger that's about a quarter of an inch long, and they were spotted actually the end of last year, December 2019, at two spots in Washington State. So that's kind of where this all started. They definitely have that murder look. They have these big, huge faces. They got these orange and black stripes that make them look really scary. And they do have venom. They usually attack in groups and they can give somebody a pretty toxic dose of venom. I think they say it could be equivalent to that of a venomous snake and a series of stings can be fatal. But in Japan, they maybe kill about 50 people in a year. And as you mentioned, this story kind of originates last year. And a lot of this news came from the New York Times, a piece that they wrote over the weekend. And the story is really about how we're rushing to stop them from 
basically making an establishment here, from basically establishing their presence in the United States. So it's not so much that they're all over the place. It was just a story about this happened last fall, and we're kind of looking on mm-hmm. how to stop it. So tell us a little bit more about how they operate. These are, again, very large hornets. And the reason why they are so venomous is because of their size. So you got to think about it like one of these big hornets carries more venom than a little honeybee or something that also can have a pretty ouch, you know, sting. But these guys, they aren't really going after humans. They are a predator to honeybees. And so what they do is when they spy a bee colony, they mark it and then they go back and as a group kind of take over the colony, kill the honeybees and end up using their larvae to feed their own young. So obviously that's not good for honeybee populations, especially since they're not used to these types of hornets in the United States or in Washington. So they can wreak havoc on a honeybee colony, especially one that's not prepared for them. And even when they were spotted in Washington last year, there weren't that many that they found, right? So I think they found two separate spottings that were verified. And I think there might've been a couple that weren't verified or weren't ever confirmed. So it's not like they're everywhere. There's been a couple of spottings. And of course, that's still a concern because we're not used to them in this part of the world. But it's not like they're popping up everywhere in the United States or that they're quickly traveling to other parts. And one of the things that you wrote about in your article, too, is that honeybees could fight back, maybe not ours because they're not used to these huge Asian hornets being around so often. So they maybe haven't developed the mechanism to fight back, but some Asian bees do a thing called heat balling so that they can fight back on these guys. How does that work? The bees that have kind of co-evolved with them in Japan and other parts of Asia, what they do to fight back against these big hornets is they kind of ball up around them. And as a team, these honeybees kind of shiver their wings or their flight muscles, and that heats up where the hornet is. So that raises the temperature of inside that ball to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Also, it kind of overwhelms the hornet with CO2, which simultaneously cooks and chokes the hornet. And the honeybees that we have here are not used to these massive hornets, so they don't have this mechanism, which makes them even more susceptible to being targeted. So going just back to how everybody was so worried about this, it's not really something that we have to worry about. This is a concern, obviously, for the honeybee population, and we don't want them to set roots in here. You mentioned in your article, too, that they most likely hitchhiked on a cargo ship from Asia to the Pacific, or sometimes people bring them here to cultivate them as a food source. We don't know officially how they got here, but it makes sense with an international economy that sometimes when you're shipping things all over the world that a couple of animals might hitchhike all over the place. They are known in some parts to be eaten, but again, we don't know for sure how they got here. So we don't know if someone brought them in to cultivate them, but it's probably more likely that they hitchhiked on some kind of shipping vessel. Coming back from the weekend, you're hearing stories. I guess there was a few people that have gotten stung by these and they said it felt like red hot thumbtacks being driven in your flesh. You get scared, but for the most part, nothing really to worry about. Sarah Kylie Watson, editorial assistant at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.